You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respects to country and to all the elders past, present and emerging who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Everyone knows about the Great Barrier Reef and that it's built by coral. But most of us don't know that most of this continent was once surrounded and protected by reefs built up by shellfish. Such reefs are rich breeding grounds for marine life and their carbon sinks. So the news that artificially constructed reef restoration projects are happening and thriving is very good to hear. It's happening globally, but the work is really succeeding in South Australia, just off York Peninsula in St Vincent Gulf near Adelaide, where the artificial Windara Reef is 20 hectares. That's well over 20 soccer fields. This week on Earth Matters, guest presenter Nikki Page in Adelaide wanted to find out more, so she grabbed the chance to talk to project manager Anita Nettaseko from the Nature Conservancy. The Windara Reef Project is on the western side of the Gulf of St Vincent. Um, it's about seven kilometres south of Ardrossan, a kilometre offshore um, in about eight to nine metres of water depth. And is that the one that I've heard referred to as the biggest project in the Southern Hemisphere? Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. So the Nature Conservancy's probably built or contributed to around 200 um, native shellfish reefs around the globe. We've been building reefs in Australia for for the last five or six years Um, and to date South Australia by far has the largest underwater restoration project um, over on the York Peninsula Um, so that's 20 hectare footprint but we also have projects in Victoria's Port Phillip Bay, WA's Oyster Harbour, got projects starting in Perth and Noosa as well. Can you tell me a bit about the Nature Conservancy? It's not an organisation I'm familiar with. Yeah, so the Nature Conservancy's been around for roughly about 70 years. Um, It was established by a group of scientists who were really interested in conservation. So it's uh, initiated out of um, the US, but we're not so well known as, you know, when you compare it to other global organisations, say WWF or Greenpeace. Um, And it's because we're not really an activism based um, organisation. A lot of the conservation work that we do is around conserving and protecting private lands um, and we usually do that with a lot of project partners and so we're often a silent partner in a lot of the works that we do. So we work with a lot of corporates, state and federal government organisations and private philanthropy um, who majoritively fund a lot of the work that we do. So we are one of the largest environmental non-for-profits in the world. Um, I think we're the second largest landowner in the United States. Um, So we've been primarily focused on purchasing and protecting large parcels of land um, globally, but in Australia we've probably raised the profile of the organisation a lot more from the work that we're doing up north with the um, uh, the Australia program and the Indigenous work we're doing with carbon fire work um, and also in the southern part of Australia working um, on the restoration of native oyster reefs which is the most uh, critically endangered marine ecosystem on the planet. We'll talk about that in depth more but I'd like to hear an early story I heard you talk about called Saving Nemo. Do you want to tell that story? 
Sure. So I have a background as a marine biologist and um, I did also postgrad in environmental management and policy. So I've always been fascinated by conservation. And at as part of working at Flinders University, I um, worked with Professor Karen Burke de Silva to set up uh, Saving Nemo because during my undergraduate I was working in an aquarium store and just saw that there was a huge rush of uh, families and adults wanting to buy these cute and charismatic species like clownfish and just um, got a good sense of where they were coming from and a lot of them were coming from the wild um, majoritively places like Southeast Asia but there's also places in Queensland where uh, wild clownfish are still being taken so the organisation was set up as a uh, education platform so it was working with schools to help educate kids around where the fish are coming from but also to help us to breed those clownfish we had uh, a breeding program at the university as well and that was to have fish bred in captivity for the aquarium trade as opposed to collecting them from the wild um, and then there's an also a research arm as well, which is helping scientists to collect information around, you know, what is the, the status of these species and, and how threatened are they? And some of that information just isn't well known. Clownfish have a really great but important relationship uh, with the anemones um, and they can't survive without anemones. And these anemones are susceptible to climate change and they're bleaching just like corals as well. So not only is there pressure from the aquarium trade, but there's also pressure there from climate change. So one of the best ways to conserve and protect these gorgeous species is just to say, look, let's just not take these clownfish or these other species from the wild. Let's breed them in captivity. And it often comes back to tackling climate crisis, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's a big challenge um, and it's something that I think for any conservation organisation is just on our key conservation priority list. Let's get back to native oyster reefs then, or you sometimes call them shellfish reefs, and you mentioned that they're seriously under threat. I think it's something like, is it 1% of reefs remaining now compared with what they used to be? Yeah, that's right. So shellfish reefs are um, the most critically endangered marine ecosystem on the planet. Uh, we refer to them as shellfish reefs because they're not just made up of oysters, but they can be made up of other species um, uh, like mussels as well. And so in Australia, we've, we estimate there's probably been 99% lost. There's only one remaining shellfish reef in Australia, and that's over in um, the northeast of Tasmania. But like in, in South Australia, uh, as an example, during the 1800s, there was a significant ecosystem of these shellfish reefs right across the state. And our research collaborators, Heidi Alleyway and Sean Connell, did some excellent research in 2015 where they reviewed all the historic fishing records um, and documented any mention of where these um, oysters were harvested from and put them on a map. And it was estimated um, that during the 1800s, probably about a third of the South Australian coastline would have been dominated by shellfish reefs. And unfortunately, the fishing was just so successful that by the 1940s that um, there were so few oysters that the whole industry collapsed. But the native oyster uh, fishery was the very first fishery in South Australia. 
and it was one of the first pieces of legislation after colonisation, which had to go all the way back to England because the government hadn't even been formed here, which was a protective um, legislation to help conserve the remaining oyster reefs that were here. Because So already they were starting to see that uh, there was a problem um, with the conservation of these species. Interestingly as well, um, a restoration was already beginning or attempts at that stage. So some of the oyster fishermen were putting out other things like tin cans, um, mallee roots, um, and trying to capture any of the native um, juvenile oysters that were still in the water column um, and providing a place for them to settle. But unfortunately, the um, the fishing methods such as the, the trawlings and the, the rakes just um, decimated these populations so significantly that we removed the majority of that um, adult population. And so what we lost is that breeding population of wild oysters. So we, to date, they haven't been able to re-establish themselves naturally. The reefs were even mined for the lime that was stored in them which might have been the death blow for them. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the oyster reefs are very similar to coral reefs where, you know, you get an accumulation of the uh, living coral reef over thousands of years of of dead coral and so really on the surface what you've got is the living coral and underneath it's just calcium carbonate Um, and oyster reefs and shellfish reefs are exactly the same in the sense that the oysters are just constantly growing on top of each other so as those fishermen came in and wiped out that top surface of the reef and took all the living organisms underneath they discovered a really rich source of um, of lime um, and so they would use that in their lime kilns and burn that and a lot of um, Australia's buildings in the 1800s are actually built on old oyster reefs and I know I've seen it in Adelaide in the town hall um, you can still see remnants of those old oyster shells if you look within the mortar marine biologist Anita Nerdesico, who manages a project led by the Nature Conservancy, which involves rebuilding artificial reefs to restore the original reefs that once covered a third of South Australia's coastline, going back thousands of years, and that were pushed to extinction by colonisation. The new reef has been built from local limestone rocks and then seeded with native oyster sprouts, and it's really important work. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This is one of the most critically endangered ecosystems, so we do have a responsibility to ensure that we're protecting these ecosystems. But the really great news is that over the last 20 years, the Nature Conservancy has built up a lot of experience of restoring these reefs with success. Um, So that's why we're focusing a lot of attention on that in Australia. But with the loss of these reef habitats, we've also lost a lot of the marine diversity that's associated with that. And just recently, um, there's been a big snapper fisheries closure. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure from fishing, but also the loss of habitat that are contributing to a lot of the uh, fish that we're losing um, and the decline in stocks. So 
putting habitat back into the marine environment is one way that we can facilitate um, the resilience of our fisheries and uh, the health of our coastal environments. Is it because they're basically breeding grounds and nurseries for fish? Is that the way it works? That's right. So when we restore it, we're putting in uh, limestone rock and we seed it with juvenile hatchery-raised oysters from local oyster farmers. What happens is you're essentially growing the ecosystem from the ground up. So as you uh, create homes um, and food for a lot of uh, smaller reef species like your marine worms, your shrimps, your crabs, you start to attract larger predatory uh, fish so the oysters themselves are constantly breeding um, and replenishing the the reef with new baby juvenile oysters which at a certain stage are very small like chips and um, they're an excellent food source for marine species like leather jackets snapper stingrays Um, So it's like constantly replenishing that reef every year with new food. But the oysters themselves are also filter feeders. So they provide an excellent um, water filtration service. Um, And so when we once would have had millions of oysters in the Gulf and they're constantly filtering a bathtub of water a day each, you can imagine the, the help that they provided in keeping our Gulf's estuaries and bays clean. Um, I think that's worth repeating, isn't it? One oyster can clean a bathtub full of water a day. 100 litres, is that right? That's correct. And so in that, they're also removing um, some of the water pollution um, that's coming off in runoff and in uh, wastewater treatment outlets like nitrogen and phosphorus. And they can handle that? I mean, you think of them processing that water and producing clean water they survive that process? There is a threshold, um, but they are, oysters are extremely resilient. There is oysters that are growing and surviving um, in the Port River, and there's an excellent group uh, called the Estuary Care Foundation who are focused solely on returning the oysters back into the Port River, which is the most polluted waterway in South Australia. Um, but there's also successful restoration projects happening in uh, New York Harbour, which was the oyster capital in the 16 and 1700s. That raises for me the question, if oysters are filtering toxins effectively out of the sea at a very efficient rate, where does that leave us as eaters of oysters? Because they're really good for us, I know that, they're full of zinc, but are we at risk in terms of some of the other things that we might be getting? It's a really good question. You know, the aquaculture oyster industry goes through really strict health standards to get their oysters from their farms onto your plate. Um, And that's why it's generally not advised for people to eat wild oysters, just from a health perspective. Um, The harvesting of oysters from the reefs that we're building is not permitted. And that's mainly just to protect that asset that we're putting into the the ecosystem and make sure that you know we're keeping the resiliency of that um, those reefs but that's not to say that at some stage some reefs may not be built for that particular purpose Um, native oysters are delicious just like uh, the pacific oyster 
which is an introduced oyster that um, we commonly see in the seafood industry. It's just not as marketable at the moment and we don't see it as often. But, you know, if you can get your hands on a an aquacultured native oyster, it's a real delicacy. What about oysters out of tins? Because, frankly, oysters on a plate are pretty damn expensive. But um, you can get things like, um, I think you can get smoked oysters, can you? Or is it only smoked mussels? Yeah, I think you can get smoked oysters as well. Um, so should we be being careful and doing our research before we eat anything like that? It's always good to see where your oysters are coming from, especially if they're international. Um, they just have a different level of health standards. But I think generally you're pretty safe if you're eating oysters in, a, in Australia. The food industry is very strict on you know our food products. Anita, so often environmental projects are controversial in a way aren't they you know it's things like trying to stop people fishing or make reserves where people can't go and that sort of thing but you've you've got a positive project here haven't you yeah so restoring marine habitat um, I see as a complementary fisheries management approach and as you mentioned you've got a lot of these no-take zones or reductions in fish size but restoration is a real give back um, fisheries management approach good news yeah if i can just follow on from how these oysters facilitate and support more fish in the gulf so as those oysters are filtering water they are feeding themselves but they're also spitting out a really rich mucus that we call a pseudo feces and that mucus goes um, down into the uh, 3d reef matrix and it actually makes food that was available, like in the phytoplankton that was would have been in the water column, available to a lot of the benthic critters. And so that actually provides a really rich food source for a lot of the bottom of the food chain. So it's actually supporting um, the ecosystem from the ground up. And how is the reef in South Australia that you've already uh, started, how's that going? We've seen some really great positive steps at the reefs on track and progressing as we're expecting. The Nature Conservancy works with um, the University of Adelaide, Flinders Uni and Department of Environment on a monitoring program. And so we've been looking at Windara Reef over the last um, three years. And what we've seen there is extremely exciting. We've seen native wild oysters recruiting onto the rocks and that's really has been unexpected so in some areas we're seeing wild baby oysters recruiting at a density of six to seven hundred per meter squared so that's um, really positive um, because we know that there is a continued source of wild recruitment which will just help with that resiliency and sustainability of that reef in the long term. But we've also started to see a real increase in um, fish species that weren't there before. There's a lot of rocky reef species like um, the magpie perch, shellfish um, like scallops and abalone. We've seen baby giant cuttlefish and already starting to see signs of some recreationally important fishing species like snapper and whiting and squid. Good to see you with a good smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's, that's definitely, it, it's nice to see that things have, uh, are progressing as we, as we expect.
You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This week we heard from guest presenter Nikki Page in Adelaide speaking with Anita Nedesico from the Nature Conservancy, who's managing a massive artificial reef restoration project in the Gulf St Vincent. And construction of a new two-hectare reef will begin soon in the waters just off Adelaide itself which is good news for all of us because each of these reefs will continue to grow naturally and sequester carbon as they do so. So a big thanks to Nikki Page and Adelaide for that story. And if you want to find out more about this fascinating project, you can check them out at nature.org. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network.